Today's sermon text is the tale of two sisters, one of them a disciple of Jesus who boldly and humbly sits at his feet and learns from him, the other a giant flying insect with a wingspan of over 800 feet whose frustration with household services leads her to wreak havoc on large Asian cities, though later she helps to defend the planet against a three-headed flying dragon from outer space. Um, Wait, hold on. Wait, no, that's the story of Mary and Mothra. That's a New Testament fan fiction I was working on. I'm not sure how that got mixed in with my sermon notes. I apologize for that. No, this is, this is Mary and Martha, not Mary and Mothra. But uh, it's no matter. The lesson is the same. Uh, frustration with our sisters and brothers can be a destructive force, particularly if I'm frustrated because I've lost sight of what's really important. I'm worried about all sorts of things that, however helpful and valuable they may be, uh, I've let them distract me from what's really necessary. Today's sermon is an invitation to take a step back and consider that there's only one thing that's necessary. Do we know what it is? And does it take priority in our lives and in the life of our church? So the sermon text is Luke 10. Verses 38 through 42, uh, Luke 10, 38 through 42. I'm not sure what page it's on in the Pew Bible. Uh, if you find it, you know, feel free to yell it out. Uh, but it's in there somewhere. Uh, Luke 10, 38 through 42. Let me go ahead and read that for us. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But only one thing is necessary, excuse me, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will, be not, which will not be taken away from her. Does it surprise you that this little story made it into the Bible, made it into Luke's account of the life of Jesus? It seems so ordinary, and maybe it's a little bit embarrassing, right? Like, we all know that everyone has these ugly little quibbles and squabbles and quarrels like this. Why does Luke include it here? Why air the, the, the budding church's dirty laundry by telling about this one time that Martha got mad at Mary for not helping with the kitchen chores? This kind of quarrel happens in churches and in homes all the time, right? You tell the kids to go clean the front room, and the next thing you know, you're hearing about who's not helping enough, and grown-ups in churches have that, and in workplaces have that same kind of argument. It's, it's nothing really new. But something in this exchange stuck out to Luke as he heard the story from those who were there, and he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, decided that there's something here that the church needs to learn about Jesus, something about his response to that situation. It's unsurprising that Luke, out of the four gospel writers, would be the one to include this. Luke seems to have a special interest in Jesus' reactions and interactions, rather, with women. And aside from the quarrel itself, 
Uh, Jesus' interaction with these women is certainly noteworthy. Uh, do you remember why Luke said he wrote this book way back in, in the beginning? Back in chapter 1 and verse 4, he says that he's writing uh, to his reader, Theophilus, so that you may have assurance concerning the things you were taught. One reason the Christians of Luke's day might feel the need for some assurance is because the church may not have looked like the culture expected something called the kingdom of God to look. Uh, it's certainly not attractive to the best and the brightest. Uh, Paul in Corinthians talks about, you know, how not many wise or powerful or of noble birth uh, were called to the church. This new religion is attracting sinners and slaves. It's removing centuries-old boundaries between Jews and Gentiles, and they're even letting women in, women of all things. You know, Paul sees women as co-laborers in the gospel, but some of the early opponents of Christianity accused Christians of engaging in debauchery in their worship meetings. I guess, what else would they have women there for? I don't know. Some of the early opponents, well, yeah, I said that, but Luke, sorry, I need another cup of coffee. Well, Luke traces the inclusion of women back to the ministry of Christ himself to show that this isn't a bug that's happened. This is something that Jesus himself intended from the beginning. Both Mary and Martha, by the way, behave in ways that are countercultural uh, for a woman of their day, and Jesus affirms them both. Martha, you might think that she's uh, adhering to traditional roles and the fact that she's stuck in the, in the, in the kitchen and frustrated and uh, distracted by much serving, but the fact that she extends this invitation of hospitality to Jesus she invites him to come home with her, and he does, is, is outside of the expectations. Uh, Martha is acting as head of the household and extending this invitation, so uh, apparently uh, both she and his, her sister Mary are single and uh, sharing the same home. Uh, a woman would certainly be occupied with serving guests in this way, but the man of the house would normally be the one to extend the offer of hospitality. <clears throat> so... Mary invites Jesus to her home, and Jesus accepts. And this is against expectations uh, in many ways. The, an ancient Jewish sort of compilation of, of, of teaching, the Mishnah, says that who speaks much with a woman draws misfortune on himself, neglects the words of the law, finally earns hell. Uh, that's a pretty strong statement. Uh, they had this concern even if you talk to your own wife too much, so certainly a stranger, uh, for Jesus, to accept this woman's hospitality, kind of goes against that counsel a little bit. But Mary, as we know, takes it a step further, doesn't she? Uh, she positions herself as a disciple of Jesus. That's what's meant by sitting at his feet and listening, listening to his teaching. To sit at somebody's feet, uh, it's not like, you know, you picture your, your faithful puppy dog curled up at your feet or something like that. It, it's, it's the place of a disciple in uh, almost formal education in Acts chapter 22, which also written by Luke, by the way. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, a well-respected rabbi. Women were not considered uh, as worthy of this kind of education. The rabbis, again, uh, back then, said things like, anyone who teaches his daughter Torah, that's books of the Bible, teaches her promiscuity. 
and the words of the Torah should be burned rather than entrusted to a woman. Now, there were some others who said, well, maybe you can teach women parts of the Bible that uh, speak to how women should behave. I'm not sure if J.L. and her tent peg made it the list, but anyway, the point is that no self-respecting Jewish rabbi would have taught a woman the way that Jesus taught Mary that day. It just wouldn't happen. Jesus welcomed her as a disciple. A disciple, by the way, is, is more than just a student. Uh, if by student we mean somebody who receives information from someone else, a disciple is more like an apprentice, uh, someone who is not just learning information, but, but learning skills and learning character. They're really learning to be like the one who's teaching them. So Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, talks about the way his readers learned Christ. Not just learned about Christ, but learned Christ himself. That's what Mary was doing. Not just learning from Christ, but learning Christ. Learning who he is and learning to be like him. And Jesus welcomes her in that position of a disciple. When Martha comes and complains, Jesus says Mary has chosen the good portion, the one thing that's necessary, and it's not going to be taken away from her. We'll come back to the one necessary thing because it's the, the big main point for all of us, but there's an equally valid observation here that Jesus welcomes women, both Mary and Martha. He welcomes women as disciples, and women too are called to learn Christ and be like Christ. Now, Jesus did call the 12 men to be disciples who would later become apostles, uh, to hold a special office in the early church, minus Judas, the betrayer, of course. That does tell us something about uh, the design for leadership in the church, but it doesn't tell us that women aren't contributing members of the kingdom. I think that's one reason Luke includes this story here and why back in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, Luke mentioned women who were with Jesus along with the twelve and contributed uh, out of their funds to the ministry. See, the first century mindset is that the men do the work that matters and women just handle the food and children and household things so that men can go and do the work that matters. And we can still have that attitude today, I suppose the risk of opening a few cans of worms. Uh, this isn't about whether or not a woman works outside the home or in traditional areas. It's about whether we value their work, whatever it is, right? Because uh, ironically, I've talked to plenty of, of stay-at-home wives who feel like their work isn't valued, plenty of women with careers who feel that their work isn't valued, and that's not even uh, to mention single women. There are women in the church who decorate or prepare food or run the nursery, and they can feel like their work is seen as inferior. And there are women who aren't gifted in those areas, so they can feel like their work is inferior. And I can't help but notice that the common denominator isn't the kind of work, but the person doing it, right? Uh, so, again, this is maybe a side point from the main point, but I, I can't help but wonder if we've learned the lesson that Luke is teaching here, that there are zero second-class citizens in the kingdom, whether that's women or Gentiles or, or whatever. So the idea of different gifts is a good segue back to the main point, or rather a good segue back to what the main point isn't. Because we've got Martha, who's distracted by all this serving, and Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. So is the point then that 
you know, the people who like learning and teaching and doctrine have got it right, and people who like serving and helping in the church, uh, they're, they're on team Martha, they've got it wrong. Uh, well, no. Uh, remember that a disciple isn't just somebody who learns information, but somebody who's learning skills and character as well. So the point isn't that you know, preachers and worship leaders and Sunday school teachers have chosen the better portion and the people who help prepare meals and, and clean up and keep the building in good shape are, are Marthas and misguided. You could have a situation where somebody is serving behind the scenes because that's how they've learned Christ. That's how they've been gifted by the Holy Spirit and they're serving with humility and love for God's people in response to the way Jesus has loved them. At the same time, you could have somebody in a, in a teaching role who's distracted and anxious and saying to God, don't you care that I'm doing all this work myself and more people need to sign up to help me with this teaching ministry. It's not about what gifts you have. It's about what you're trying to use them for and your attitude. So Martha's distracted with much serving, the passage said. She's stressed out. She's doing stuff that needs to be done, right? There are cultural expectations for hospitality. She's head of the household, and there's meals to be prepared and accommodations to make for this important guest, Jesus, who she has in her home, and presumably his 12 disciples with him. I think we understand the cultural expectation to be a good host. It still exists today in some places more than others, some parts of the country more than others. When I was in seminary, uh, they had something called the Seminary Wives Institute, which, by the way, they don't think it's funny when you call it the Stepford Wives Institute. I learned that. I learned it a few times. Probably didn't learn it. That's <laughs> the problem. You can ask my wife about it. But, uh, you know, in, in many traditional churches, especially in the South, and this was a, a Southern Baptist school, you know, the pastor's wife has certain expectations supposed to be able to, to be a good hostess, and so they had the Stepford Wives Institute to help prepare wives for those expectations. They uh, taught things like making jam and sewing and things like that, and I'm told they had a program where someone would call you up on the phone, your, I don't know if it's a den mother or what you call it, and she would be at your house in 15 minutes, and you're supposed to be ready with a clean house and a dessert and lemonade or that abomination they call sweet tea down there, I don't know, but you know, it, some churches really do expect that, and, and, and you know, for, for, for those who are going with that mindset, uh, I'm sure it was helpful for them. I don't want to, you know, overstate, but it's, it's you know, still kind of weird, though, that you know, Becca was in school at the same time I was, and there wasn't a Voice Teachers Husbands Institute. I don't know why. I feel like I really could have benefited from something like that, but I don't know what it would have involved. I don't know where I'm going with it. Yeah, cultural expectations, that's what we're talking about. They weigh heavily, and we understand that, right? We can kind of identify with Martha a little bit. There is a lot of work for her to do and a lot of pressure, and what if it doesn't get done? You know, there's shame on her if she doesn't get this done. So she goes to Jesus and demands that he do something about it. It's quite an outburst, isn't it? She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care? that my sister has left me to serve alone. Tell her then to help me. She accuses Jesus of not caring, almost of being a bad guest. You see, behind this, she's, she's come to doubt Jesus' goodness. She orders him to tell Mary to help her. Even though she calls Jesus Lord, there doesn't seem to be a lot of respect for him here. 
But there's a lot for us to learn from Jesus' response to this anxious woman. He doesn't react with the same tone, like I probably would. He's not defensive, even though she's really attacked him. He doesn't directly rebuke her attitude. You know, I would probably jump in with something like, of course I care. All you care about are the, the dishes or the cooking or whatever. There's more important things in life. Why don't you care about people and learning about God? You know, that those things may all be true about Martha in that moment, but Jesus' answer is gentle, isn't it? He acknowledges that she's under stress. Now, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. He calls her by name. He recognizes, really, that she's hurting, that the responsibilities are weighing heavily on her. See, Jesus didn't come to just pile on even more burdens. He came to take them away. He doesn't order her to, to dive into her to-do list and examine her attitude and priorities as if the solution is just keep doing the same things and force yourself to have the right attitude about it. Now, Jesus invites her to let go. He recognizes the distress her priorities are calling her and he's, he's calling her to a better way. She's agonizing over so many things there's only one thing that's necessary. He's calling her to let go of all these things and just focus on the one thing that she needs to. How we respond to people is at least as important as whether we correctly discern their issues. You know, you're worried? The Bible says don't worry. You know, sin is unbelief. That's sin. It's unbelief. Just repent and trust God and pray more. That's not Jesus' response to, to her anxiety. This is, it's not a helpful response. It just adds more worry, right? Now you're stressed about being stressed because I'm not being stressed in the right way. Uh, thinking even harder about the things that you're already obsessing over is probably a dubious solution anyway. But Jesus instead points Martha ever so gently to the one thing that matters, the one thing that's necessary, and it's the one thing that can't be taken away. It's the thing that Mary has chosen, the good portion, he calls it. This could be a reference to the meals that Martha was probably stressing over. You know, there's a good portion if you, in the next couple months, serve a turkey. You know, people might have different ideas about what's the best part. You know, like the whole save the neck for me, Clark, kind of thing. And Mary has chosen what's truly the best part. Mary is focusing on the one thing that's necessary. She's learning from Christ. She's sitting at his feet, learning his word. Jesus tells Martha, that won't be taken from her. Do you see how, it, how it's better? It won't be taken away. It won't let you down. You know, the stuff you're stressed over might blow up in your face. It might. That's why you're stressed about it. The one thing that matters comes with a guarantee. It won't be taken away. So Jesus is gentle and understanding of Martha, but he does not give in to her. He doesn't throw Mary under the bus to, to grease this squeaky wheel in front of him. Jesus is going against cultural expectations, too. This isn't how things are done. And he's benefiting from Martha's service and generosity. It doesn't matter. There's something more important. Mary is right. The important thing, the only necessary thing, is to know Jesus, to sit at his feet, to learn from him, to learn to be like him. That's the one thing that's needed, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to learn Christ. You know, it's interesting that Luke 
puts this story right after the parable of the Good Samaritan. He's the only gospel writer to use to, to include both of these things. The parable of the Good Samaritan is all about putting love into action, isn't it? Uh, proving to be a neighbor through sacrificial service. That's what the Good Samaritan did in that parable. He served. But still, the, the core of the passage, uh, both passages, is the same. Love of God and love of neighbor, you can't separate them. And to learn Christ is to learn the works that he calls us to do as his body. There, there is stuff to do. But it all revolves around and, and flows from the one necessary thing, which is to learn Christ and to receive what he first gives us. One author, Amy Bird, sums up Jesus' message to Martha like this. She says, you're not the host, Martha, I am. The privilege isn't in being able to serve me. I have come to serve you. This is fundamental to our faith, is it not? Jesus came not to be served, he said, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. We don't come to Jesus on the basis of what we do for him through what he did for us, we can come to God. He died for sin to pay the penalty that we had earned, and he rose again from the dead. As we sang earlier, once for all, the work is done. That is the foundation of our relationship with God and with one another in the church, knowing that once for all, the work is done, the work that really needed to be done for us to be reconciled to God is all done. From there, yes, he does call us to serve God and serve neighbor, but first he calls us to receive the service he gave in his broken body and shed blood. So Martha's problem is not that she was serving. It's that she allowed her serving to distract her from the one thing that really mattered, receiving Jesus. Doing things for Jesus distracted her from actually spending time with Jesus and learning Jesus. And because she was distracted from Jesus, she became troubled and anxious, and then she began to doubt that Jesus cared, and then she became angry with Jesus and with her sister. There's some application to our personal stress levels. You know, you have stuff to do, right? It's, it's weighing on you, and you can see the stress affect relationships. This isn't the only piece of the puzzle necessarily in dealing with stress, but it's one piece, and that's remember the one thing that's necessary, and it's the best part, and it won't be taken away from you. No matter what happens with the other stuff you're worried about, you, you can apply this to your individual stress levels, but notice that the passage is interpersonal, and I wonder how much conflict happens in churches because we get distracted from the one necessary thing that we're supposed to be here for, and we end up anxious and troubled about many things and doubting God's care, and we lash out at people who don't share the anxiety that, that we have. Uh, maybe they're anxious about other things. There are plenty of things that we can stress out over. Again, it's not about uh, what gifts you have. There are, you can stress over just about anything, whether it's a Mary thing or a Martha thing, whether it's a, a good thing that we should be doing or, or a crazy thing that, that we ought not to be. You, know, you can be anxious about the church's doctrine. You're aware that ideas have consequences and 
People can be drawn in by all kinds of crazy things. If we don't get a solid doctrinal foundation, who knows where we'll end up. Or you can be stressed out about uh, music and worship. You know, if we don't have the right kind of worship service, however you define that, then people won't want to be here and the church will die. Or kids' ministry. If we don't do enough for young families to draw them in, the church is just going to die of old age. Or, or outreach in general. If we don't do enough to reach the lost and bring in new people, uh, we won't have enough people and the church will die. Maybe it's small groups. Uh, if we don't commit to a healthy and vibrant small group program, that the church won't develop the sense of, of family and community that we need in our mission to draw people in. And the church will die. Maybe a welcome team, fill in all kinds of things here. If we don't have a friendly but intentional follow-up process, we'll never connect with visitors the way we need to, and the church will die. Finances, if we don't balance the budget and keep enough in reserve, we'll go bankrupt and have to shut it all down, and the church will die. These are good things, by the way, that we should think about. Uh, but you can also substitute any number of crazy things people get into because they're afraid the church will die. You know, if we don't buy into whatever the latest trend is that the Christian publishing companies are selling, you know, if we don't do the purpose-driven church or the pray the prayer of Jabez, then we're going to be left behind or whatever. You know, I, I don't play golf, as you probably know, but there's a story of a guy, much like myself, not a golfer, who decided to go out and give it a go anyway for some reason. Uh, so he, he gets out there and he, he puts the little golf ball on the little golf ball stand or whatever and does the little wiggle thing and get himself into a golf stance or whatever it's called like he's see, seen on TV. And he, he winds up the, the big golf stick thing and, and, and he takes a big swing and misses the ball completely, uh, as I would do. Uh, and instead he hits an anthill and just massacres uh, hundreds of innocent ants. But undeterred, he takes a deep breath, you know, focuses, and tries again. More ants are slaughtered. Uh, he, he begins to get angrier and angrier and uh, swings more and more erratically. And uh, Peta is notified of this unconscionable loss of ant life. And finally, one ant says to the other, if we don't get on the ball, we're all going to die. I learned that joke from Mike. I'll give him credit for it. <laughs> Look, so it's not wrong to, to recognize likely consequences of our actions or, or, or inaction. Uh, maybe the lesson is to remember what, what, what is the one ball that we really are supposed to get on, right? Uh, but there's a difference between wisdom and anxiety. You know, if our motivation in ministry the whole time is avoid church death, uh, we're acting out of anxiety, and that makes us susceptible to conflict when we're anxious about something that somebody else is not. It also makes us vulnerable to whatever snake oil somebody's trying to sell us for this is the thing that, that will uh, make your church the way it's supposed to go. But more, most importantly, it just it distracts us from the one thing that's really necessary, to sit at the feet of Christ, to learn from him, to learn who he is, to learn to be like him. You can fill on, I'll give you a couple examples, you can fill in your, on your own how this affects uh, all the things that we are called to do, but what if we worship because we sat at the feet of Christ and learned who he is and we adore him, we long to praise him. 
What if we do children's ministry, not because we feel like we have to for the, the church to grow properly, but because we sat at the feet of Christ and we saw how he welcomed the little ones? What if we want to reach the lost because we know Jesus will call all his scattered sheep into his fold and we want to be a part of that? What if we care about church finances because Jesus said, where our treasure is, there our heart will also be. You know, we've been in a new building with a new name for a while now, uh, though COVID kind of put a monkey wrench in sort of our, our grand plans to, to reopen. Uh, we're still working out some questions. Uh, what will we be now? What, what's, what's it going to look like in, in this new place? And how are things going to work? As we go forward, can we agree to keep our focus on the one thing that's necessary? Let's not let our distraction lead us into anxiety, into doubting Jesus' goodness, into conflict with one another. Let's sit at the feet of Jesus together. Let's learn him. Let's learn Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. That's the one thing that's necessary for us as a church. It's the best part. And whatever else happens, this won't be taken from us. Let's pray. Father, uh, our hearts tend to be so restless with so many things. Help us to find our rest in you. Uh, we come before you so many things on our minds, uh, so much stress, uh, so, so just so much that weighs on us, our to-do lists and, and everything, uh, all the senses of obligation and uh, what's going on this week and the busyness of life and, and our own uh, feeling of works righteousness, feeling like uh, we have to earn our place with you. Father, help us in this moment to trust the word that you have spoken to us, to trust that Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. Help us to grasp this truth to believe it and simply to receive what Christ has given. Help us to receive your grace, to receive your love, to receive this gift so wondrous and mind-boggling and freely given, the gift of your Son who came and died a, a cruel and agonizing death to, to take the punishment we deserve, to wash us with his own blood, to make us, in your eyes, righteous and 
clean and holy and beautiful to you. Help us to receive the robes of Christ that you clothe us in. And know that we are loved by you. Thank you that uh, even now you are with us through Christ and by the power of your spirit. Help us to remember always that you are with us as we sit at the feet of Christ and learn what it's like to follow him. Help us to grow deeper in our love for you and as we learn more of Christ, help us to be conformed to that same image from one degree of glory to another so that we would all reflect that same love and grace and peace to one another and uh, to the world around us. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name.